you can be seated. It's great to sing together, to celebrate, to worship the Lord. I was encouraged and really blessed by the time of worship this morning. Rob, would you come pray? If you were with us last week, uh, you'll remember my good friend Rob Krause. He and his family are here today. Welcome. I asked Rob if he would pray for us before we head into the sermon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to sing, to sing praises to the one true Holy Son. And Father in heaven, we pray, and we pray together pastorally. We pray as a congregation, corporately. And we pray in affectionate love and adoration of God the King. And this morning, I pray, Father, as, um, as we gather before your word and our ears are attentive, that we would, we, um, as a church body, would join with every congregation across earth singing your praises this morning on the Sunday. From time zone to time zone, like a wave, as the earth turns, so a wave of praise and adoration as the sun rises goes up to the Holy Father. And we are a part of that. And there in heaven, before we ever awoke, the angels and the elders falling down before your throne are praising you for who you are, who, what you have done, and what you still will do. And nothing greater in all of the universe has been accomplished than in Jesus Christ. There is nothing more about the Father that we can learn apart from Jesus Christ. The embodiment of God, the channel and the door to the Father, the one to whom we look and lift and fix our eyes upon, who has done immensely so much, no fear in life, no guilt in death. This is our destiny. It is not a book. It is not just a pleasure. It is not just a delight. It is the very person of Jesus. Thank you for what you, you have done and what you will do in coming back again for us. As a friend of Church on Mill, together I begin to pray for this church family. I pray that there would be a stirring similar to what Malachi said when he said when there would be evidence of the Messiah's coming and a true mark of Messiah would be that the hearts of the fathers would turn to the children and the hearts of the children would turn to their fathers. And in that, in that generational love, adoration, enablement, empowering, and respect, that there would be a Messiah shown uh, out of gratitude, out of um, the growth of family, um, out of the, uh, the idea that the church becomes a family where there is refuge for one and for all. And this would be a place of peace, and safety, and word, and truth, and spiritual vitality, and spiritual truth and power. Thank you for Church on Mill, and may, may the people here, as I pray a benediction, and, and, and cast a vision over them in Christ, that you would strive and look forward, fixing your eyes on Jesus to remain faithful to him, out of love and, and adoration for him. That when we come back again in the years to come, that we would see yet an, an even more vibrant church, full of the empowering Holy Spirit and dedication and faithfulness to God's word, God's person, and God's work in Tempe, Arizona. To the glory of God, hallelujah. And now I pray as we would all lift our eyes together from Tempe, and we'd look across the seas to Europe, 
for the nation dear and, and deeply embedded in our hearts, the land of Italia. For it is in Italia, a nation dark for centuries, desperately in need of the truth of the words of grace. And we pray for leadership, and we pray for empowering, and we pray that the word of God would speed ahead and be honored and be received as Paul asked the Thessalonians to pray in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 1. Now, Lord, as we approach and we go back into that country in the next few days, that Church on Mill would be our partners, that you would come with us, that you would pray with us, that you would be burdened with us for a land of 62 million people just, just resting, waiting there for her destiny as well, that many would be called to your name, many churches would be planted for your glory. Now, bless the word, I pray. The word that Pastor Chuck would bring to us now, that it would be your word, and that it would be glorious, and that it would inflame and ignite our hearts to passionately love Christ today. And may you bless abundantly this body in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. I hope you'll uh, remember to pray for the crosses as they do go back into their work. We hope to send a, a team there later this year to serve and to learn more and to continue to encourage the body to be involved. So thank you, brother, for your prayers. Uh, today we are going to carry on in John. So if you have a Bible, please turn to John 17 with me. If you don't, there should be a, a Bible in the rack underneath the chair in front of you. We will be on page 623 in that Bible. You're free to take that if you don't have one. All summer long we've been walking together real slowly, carefully through one of my favorite sections of Scripture, this short period of time in which Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death. That's just hours away. And some of the most famous things in all of Scripture occur in John 13 through 17. We'll look at the middle portion of John 17 today, and then next week, Brian Jerry is going to share with us again on the latter end of John 17. I'm not sure how to take that. That, you paid him. All right, great. So John 17 will be in the middle section today. If, if you'll remember back two weeks ago, if you were here, we just looked at a few verses at the beginning, uh, verses 1 to 5, in which Jesus essentially made one request. He said, Father, be glorified. Glorify me and thereby glorify yourself through me. And we talked a little bit about how that way of thinking about prayer is so different than many times the way we think about prayer. Prayer is people, God's people, posturing themselves before God, asking that God would be glorified in whatever circumstances he may bring. All the great prayers of the Bible do that, and we saw that in Jesus in that first five verses. Today we'll look further, and Jesus will move from praying not for himself, but praying first for his immediate 11 disciples, and therefore... After that, for all the disciples who would come after him. One really interesting thing about this prayer, perhaps we should consider before we dive deep into the parts of it, is that it's essentially Jesus praying God's word back to God. In other words, Jesus isn't begging God the Father to do something already not in the works. Instead, he's submitting to the Father by praying the things he already knows to be true. 
He's affirming God's will, saying it's good, and I want to participate in it. And you're in charge. I'm under your authority, Father. Do your work through me. As Jesus prays, he's really gripped by God's faithfulness to do what God has stated he would do in his word. That's also really different than sometimes the way we pray, isn't it? Perhaps you heard Rob praying that way as he prayed. He was just scooping up little passages of Scripture all throughout that prayer, reminding God the Father of what God the Father has said he would do, and therefore finding and enjoying the good will of God in the Scriptures. Have you ever considered praying like that? Just opening the Bible, reading, thinking deeply about what you see there, meditating upon it, and then allowing that scripture that you're in to guide your prayers. Many times when I've been in a funk spiritually, what's pulled me through is doing that. In particular, going to Psalms and allowing the Psalms to guide prayers. Perhaps if you're here today and you would say, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ, but I feel dry and God seems distant, then perhaps it would be a great thing for you to try this week is just to open the book of Psalms and to each day walk through a psalm, praying about it, meditating on it, thinking about it, allowing it to guide your prayers when you're not sure what to pray. That's the kind of praying you can do that you know God will answer because you're praying his word back to him. Does that make sense? Give it, give it some try if you've never done that. Uh, psalm 1 is the introduction to all of the psalms. Anybody know how many there are? And, and there's a whole bunch of them. There's 150 of them. And the psalms are the, the prayer book or the songs of the Bible. And so it's extremely important and useful to use them as a way through which to pray. Meditating on God's word, allowing ourselves to marinate in the truth, if you will, can be enormously effective at reigniting your heart back towards God. So meet a friend, pray together, pray by yourself, but pray in a psalm long enough that your thoughts and motives and feelings begin to reveal themselves and so that you can submit those things to God. And if you're a Christian, then as you are praying, you're declaring the truth of what's yours in Christ. And that's the ground upon which you can stand because our faith is a faith of grace. God's grace given to us, not what we have done, but what he has done. And so we can be richly encouraged by praying that way. And if you're somebody here that would say, I haven't made up my mind yet about this whole Jesus thing. You guys are kind of weird, but I'm intrigued. Then this is certainly something that you could do too, is take one of these Bibles near you, take it home, open to the middle, that's where the Psalms are, and just read and talk to God asking God to reveal himself, to make himself known, to convince you if he's true or not. It can be a guide for you as well. Over time, whether believer or not, I think what you'll find is praying that way will ground you in the truth. Praying that way will give you peace where you didn't have it before. Praying that way will give you greater confidence in times of hardship. Praying that way will allow you to be ruled less by fear and much more by faith. These are the things that prayer does. 
Why? Because we're praying the truth of God back to God. And in the process, God's reshaping our hearts to what's real. I'd love us to spend the whole morning talking more about that, but instead, let's look at how Jesus did it. Let's see an example of Jesus laying out prayers in that way. John 17 is overflowing with truth about who God is and what God has done. It's a declaration from the Son to the Father that's completely marinated in the truth of God's Word. Uh, We've asked Caitlin Jodon if she would come and read. Caitlin, would you come on up? And Caitlin's one of our very involved youth. We're thrilled for that. And I heard that you're a little bit older today. Is that true? Yes. Happy birthday. Thank you. Read to us. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I have kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, that, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Awesome. Thank you. So that's John 6 through 19, which we'll talk about today. Uh, As he was dying, Winston Churchill said, I'm bored with it all. Those are his last recorded words. Leonardo da Vinci said, I've offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. I don't know what he was looking at. Time has not proven that to be true. Last words are powerful. They're often the things that we've most thought about in life and therefore what comes out in the end. John 17 records some of Jesus' very last words. And as last words, they give great emphasis to how we should think about Jesus. As Jesus considered his death and his departure, the issue that was on his mind was that his disciples would be holy as they were being sent out on mission. This long section of the prayer that Caitlin read all boils down to that. Is Jesus' heartbeat that God's people would be people that display the goodness, the holiness of God as they are out in the world sharing the gospel with people. The temptations from within our own hearts and the pressure from the world around us 
cause us to be in a very difficult situation in which we're to be in the world but not of the world. And so Jesus was bringing that issue before the Father. I want to walk through that with you, but first, I don't want to skip past the first five and a half verses that form the basis or the ground upon which Jesus would pray that we would be sent out. Let me point out just three things in, that first five, in those first five verses that Caitlin read. Jesus prayed that we would be confident and holy as we were sent out into the world because we belong to God. God loves us and has given us his saving love. Christians... The God of the universe is your God. The God that has the power to simply speak words and cause things to come into being is the same God who speaks words into your daily life and is with you. And he's for you. That means that there's nothing good that the Father would withhold from you. That everything that you need to grow in him and to serve him and to be sent out by him has already been given to you in Christ. It's yours. You simply have to learn how to call upon him. And it means that because we belong to God, our lifestyles will more and more increasingly, as we're believers, reflect a Christ-likeness that we see of Jesus in the Gospels. We desire as a church to be increasingly transformed by God's Spirit through his words so that we can live out what's true about us already. Jesus, as he thought about the difficulty of being in a world that's hostile to Christianity and yet doing that in such a way that we're, we're faithful to God and fruitful in the world, he prayed that on the basis of us being called by God and belonging to God. A second thing he prayed is that we've come to know God as our holy Father. Friends, there is no evil in God. We serve a holy God a pure God, a lovely God, a God who never does evil, a God who's never had an evil thought, a God who always does what's right all the time. Can you imagine for all of eternity being on the side of truth and justice and goodness forever? You and I don't make it a day, but God has been that way forever and will be that way forever. And so Jesus said, that he could have confidence in coming before the Father and praying God's goodness and God's strength and God's holiness and God's will on us because we have come to know him. We know that Father exists. So we too can have that confidence. And third, Jesus prayed that on the grounds or on the basis that Christians are people who have received God's word. Friends, our faith is not mainly dependent upon the emotions we happen to have at this particular moment in time. Emotions are fickle. They change based on how much you slept last night, whether you liked what you had for breakfast, and what the person sitting next to you smells like. Christianity is, is different. Yes, it affects our emotions, of course, but it's not rooted in our emotions. It's rooted in the Word of God. It's rooted outside of us in something objective that has happened in history. Jesus came, died, and rose again. And because of that truth, our, our affections can be changed towards God. Joy can 
replace sorrow, as Tad talked about a few weeks ago. Christians, that's great news. It's great news that we don't look inward for faith, but we look outward to something outside of us that God has given to us because there's much greater strength there, much greater assurance that it's true. Christians are simply people who believe in God's word. We grasp God's grace every day and try to live in light of it. Now, because of all of that, Jesus says that we're to resist worldliness and pursue mission together. In other words, he stood not on something he wasn't sure of, but he stood on all the Old Testament passages that said, that's what the Messiah will come to do, to bring together a people who would display God's glory, God's goodness, God's holiness before the world. Church, there's a particular kind of life to which we now, as Christians, are supposed to live. It's a life of holiness on the mission of making disciples. To be a Christian is to be sent with the gospel. Whether you'll get on a plane and go back to Italy, or whether you'll stay here in Tempe, the mission is exactly the same. It's to represent God well as God's people, showing other people what God's like in the way we treat each other, in the way we treat him. We're to be missionaries who are in the world, but not of the world. God's design is that the church would be a counterculture, showing just how good it is to love God and follow God. Did you hear all of that in the prayer? It's there. Look at verse 11 with me, if you would. Verse 11, Jesus says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, meaning his disciples and us. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And jump down to verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Make them holy in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The last words of Jesus, what was gripping his mind, is that the mission he came to start, we would complete. We would continue. And this prayer is being answered, is it not? Look around you. All around you are people from all different places and backgrounds, all different education levels, all different ethnicities, and we've gathered together today to worship God because God is our Holy Father. It's great news that we can see it being portrayed right here among us. So holiness and mission, that was what was on Jesus' mind. Holiness means to be set apart from evil and to be devoted to what's good. And Christians, you can live that way because you've been given and clothed with the holiness of Christ. And mission, mission is simply taking the gospel message into a world that needs it so badly. So there's this tension that's in this passage that I found extremely difficult to figure out how to communicate today. So hopefully God will help us. Let's ask him to do that. Father, we as Christians live in this tension of the call to be in the world among people who do not love you, who do not believe in you, 
who do not enjoy you, who do not call upon you. And because of that, they're, they're seeking meaning and fulfillment and life and all kinds of things that cannot deliver it. And so we're sent by you to be light in dark places, not because we're better than them, but simply because we've come to know you. And yet we're not to become of the world. We should stand out. There should be a contrast. Again, not because we're better than anyone else, but because you have become our Father. And Jesus has saved us, and the Holy Spirit's in us. And articulating that tension is is challenging. We pray that your word would speak to us, that you would speak to us, that we would leave better equipped to live holy lives on mission for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On the one hand, Jesus is praying and saying that God's people should have very different priorities and loves than those who don't follow him. We recognize God as our Lord, and that changes everything because then he's in charge and I'm not. And we're invited into a family, a church family, where people do crazy things like say, are you sure that's a good decision? Can I pray with you about that? Or you seem discouraged. How can I serve you this week? Or I don't think that's actually what God says. Let's look at it together. Maybe I'm wrong. We come into a family of God where we try to help each other. We don't walk the path of life towards the mirage of our individual dreams anymore, but towards the glory of God's people gathered around the throne, worshiping Him forever. We should be different. But on the other hand, God's people shouldn't run from the world and hide among themselves. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. So there's these two pitfalls that we've got to avoid. One is isolation from the world, and the other is assimilation back into the world. Jesus is saying both are wrong. He's saying there's a, there's a third way to live, if you will. Christians are to be engaged in the world, but making disciples, walking faithfully with people who do not agree with us, not constantly beating over them the Bible as we're somehow better than them, but living with them and inviting them to see Christ in us, but yet not taking on their priorities and values. We're to be thoroughly engaged in the world without being ruled by the world. I want to give us here in a few minutes an example of how to do that and talk through that. But first, maybe some comments to the non-Christians in the room would be appropriate. No, you don't have to stand up and shout out, I think you're crazy, although you're welcome to do that. When we think about that tension between Christians living in the world but not being of the world, I can't help but think of the ways in which Christians have failed to do that and to initiate that conversation by saying, we're sorry, we have not done that perfectly, and we recognize it. There may be some ways in which we have failed you personally. We may have given you the impression that our striving to be obedient to God is what makes people acceptable to God. And it's not. There is no one who could obey God enough to earn the right to have sin removed and goodness to be given to us. 
The debt of sin is too great. It doesn't work that way. But sometimes in our efforts to be obedient to God, we give you the impression that if you just try hard enough, like we're trying, then God would love you. And that's a lie. It doesn't work that way. We may have turned up our noses at your sin while ignoring our own. You may be very easily able to see in which the things that we do and say are not congruent with God, even while we miss that. We're oblivious to it. We may have argued over politics instead of trusting and testifying in the God of tremendous grace and what's available in the gospel and put our hope in the wrong place. We may have spoken, as Christians, things with our mouths that then we go out and deny with our bodies. We may have ignored your genuine needs instead of reaching out to you in mercy the way Jesus did. And in all of these things, and many more, we would say, we're sorry. We have not represented the name of Christ well. The Bible tells us that people are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Anything else that we've added to that in the way that we've lived towards you was wrong and did not represent our Savior or this church well. Would you forgive us? Would you not count out the truthfulness of God's word simply because we haven't done it perfectly? Only God's kindness through trusting in Christ can rescue people blinded by their sin. And even once we're saved, we still struggle with being blinded by sin. All human beings are without hope apart from God's grace. And if we truly understood and grasped the power of God, then every day we'd live with an awareness that we need the gospel today just as much as the day we were saved. So give God another chance. God in his grace is still saving us and he can save you too. You don't have to clean yourself up first. He's a God of grace and mercy and can come to you today in love. So how does this principle work itself out practically? That Christians are to be in the world among people who disagree and yet distinct from, not looking exactly like, not acting exactly like. How do we navigate those waters? Well, it occurred to me this week that as I worked on this, it might be best to show how that principle plays itself out in the greatest moral struggle of our day. The greatest moral struggle of our day is to live godly lives in the area of sex and sexuality. That is not the issue the church is pressing. It is not what the church is saying is most important. But it is what our culture is saying is most important. And so it's on that leading edge of society, if you will, where we most need to be humble and gracious and honest and truthful. It's where we most need to show how to be in the world but not of the world. So let me take about 10 minutes to just try and lay out for you what that might look like. Christians are people who believe what God says about sex. We believe it's a great gift of God given to humanity. We believe it's a privilege 
And all privileges come with responsibilities. Our responsibility as human beings is to enjoy sex to its fullest in the context that God's created it for. A man and a woman pledged before God to each other for the rest of their lives should enjoy sex for the oneness that it creates. It's an amazing gift of God. And as the context into which children are born and grow to adulthood. That is the design of God for our sex and our sexuality. Anything outside of that isn't outside of it because God's a prude or because he thinks it's gross. It's outside the bounds because it's destructive and harmful. It won't deliver what we think it will. That's what it's for. God designed sex for pleasure and procreation in the context of a husband and wife, committed to each other for life. Now, frankly, we live in a world that's gone absolutely insane when it comes to sex and sexuality. What appears to the world to be liberation is only inviting the world deeper into slavery of sin. Not only has sex been divorced from the safety of marriage, but we've fundamentally altered what marriage is. And the byproduct of that is that we've said gender and sexuality and God's design for men and women don't matter anymore. And yet they do. They're inherent to what it means to be a human being. We are male or we are female. And that's part of God's gift to us as human beings. To reject that and to deny that will only cause harm in the long run. It will not create a better life. What culture has wholesale bought into is the obliteration of part of the very essence of what it means to be a human being. And that viewpoint is going to cause pain and confusion because it's not the way God designed us to live. And so the Christian, being in the world, not of the world, is aware of all of these realities, right? And yet we have family members, we have friends, we have neighbors who reject everything I just said. So how do we be in the world but not of the world in regards to our sex and sexuality? For some of you, the first thing you need to hear is, don't panic. Calm down. God's still in control. He's good. He's building a kingdom, and that kingdom is not the United States of America. He's building a kingdom in heaven made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who have engaged in all kinds of foolish behaviors, who are being rescued by God to enjoy God together. We don't need to be afraid. Sure, we disagree with the decision the Supreme Court made not long ago. But that is no cause to panic as though God has somehow washed his hands of all of God's people who happen to be found here. Simply not true. But others of you, others of us, need to hear something on the completely other end of the spectrum. You need to hear it does matter. There are consequences when we disobey God. You're not free to do whatever you want with no strings attached. When we've engaged in sexual behavior outside of God's design, it has been harmful. 
Whether you realize it or not, you're still carrying the harm with you unless you've brought that before God and found his forgiveness and his healing. So we're all over the map in this room. And so even in the church, we need to be in each other's lives, encouraging each other to see what God has said and encouraging one another to live out those truths. Christian, today you have the opportunity to humbly, patiently, gently show God's people and the people who reject God that God's grace and truth are so much better than anything you'll ever find in sexual activity. Whether it's in the context that God designed it or not, there's more to life than that. So to the college student struggling with pornography, or to your neighbor who says she's a lesbian, to a co-worker who claims to be a Christian but he's living with his girlfriend and has no intent of marrying her, or to the classmate who believes his gender is different than his biological sex. In all of those situations, the call of the Christian to the non-Christian is not to shun them. It's not to push them away. It's not to treat them as somehow, that they are somehow so much worse than you ever could be. It's to be in their lives, to be friends, to invite them into your home, to welcome them over a meal, and to not be so foolish as to think the only sin they're struggling with is their sexuality. Being in the world but not of the world will mean, yes, we don't say that behavior's fine. God doesn't care. You're free to do whatever you want. Those things are not true. Those are destructive lies. But it's also not to say, I can't have anything to do with you until you quit looking at porn or living with your boyfriend or acting out in a lesbian lifestyle. If you were treated that way over your faith or over your desires, you never would have come to Christ. Whoever engaged you with the gospel was engaging you while you were in the middle of sin. And James says, if you fail in one sin, you failed in them all. God's given us a time, a moment in history that's different than any moment that's ever come before. And that's a moment to show with our words and our actions that this path is going to end in ruin. But God can rescue people out of it. Isn't that great news? So let's be patient and kind and prayerful and honest and watch for the circumstances in which God would give us opportunity because there's relationship, because we've shown we care to speak the truth of God. Speaking harshly about the politics involved or shunning people with same-sex attraction will not spread the gospel. And yet, never articulating that God's grace can rescue us out of all kinds of sin will also not spread the gospel. Hiding your beliefs and accommodating to current cultural trends will not spread the gospel. But neither will treating homosexuality as an unforgivable sin. We need to be in the world loving people, truly caring for them, sharing the gospel of grace and truth, 
and helping each other navigate how to do that. This is becoming increasingly complex, but the gospel remains true. Church on Mill, we really can, as God's people, live holy lives, joyfully sharing the gospel with people who disagree. We do that, as Rob talked about last week, through, through hospitality, through meals. We do that at work, by not disengaging from people that we would disagree with, by helping them flourish in their work, by being the best we can possibly be at our jobs. We do that relationally in our homes, our apartments, by not living in front of the TV when we're home, but being out, engaged in neighborhood life. Friends, we, we really can enjoy knowing God as our perfect, holy Father and experience the thrill of being used by God to communicate the gospel to others. Yet all of this necessitates that we be people who say no to sin and yes to God. And that's not a decision you make once, right? You've already made it today. There have already been opportunities today in which you said either no to sin and yes to God or no to God and yes to sin. Those are decisions we make hundreds of times every single day. And we can increasingly obey God if we're relying on God's strength and living under his word together. So to the Christians in the room, I would ask you, is there an area of your life that you've been hiding? Is there something that you know, this does not honor God? This does not cause God delight? This is the exact opposite of what the scriptures tell me I ought to do. And yet you've, keep, you've kept it hidden. You've been coddling it. You've been engaging in it, enjoying it, and then feeling convicted about it, and over and over and over running that cycle. Friend, would you say to God today, I don't want to do that anymore. You're a gracious, holy, loving God. Would you take this from me? I'll confess it to you, God. And would you give me a fresh start today? Would you stop courting and nurturing that area of worldliness through the encouragement of your brothers and sisters in Christ? If so, then God's grace is open wide to you. He's ready and willing to forgive. So look at that sin, confess it to God, but then don't stay there. Don't gaze on the sin. Gaze on God and what God has done for us in the gospel. Because it's there, from there, that the power to live differently flows. John Owen put it like this. When someone sets his affections upon the cross and the love of Christ, he crucifies the world as a dead and undesirable thing. The bait of sin loses its attraction and disappears. Fill your affections with the cross of Christ and you'll find no more room for sin. Ultimately, the answer isn't gazing at our sin, but it's gazing at the glory, the wonder, the beauty, the majesty of a God who would come, die, and rise again. 
Brothers and sisters, that's how you grow in turning from sin and in enjoying God and living faithfully on the mission of making disciples. If you found yourself caught up, Christian, in worldly things, today's a day to repent, to enjoy the joy and the glory and the wonder of knowing you're right with God again. You get that not through cleaning up your behavior, trying harder to make yourself acceptable to God, but simply by falling at his feet in prayer for grace and mercy. Let's take a few moments together to pray, just individually. Perhaps there's something you need to pray about and talk to God about. Perhaps there's somebody here today who's never accepted Christ, never come to him for salvation. You can do that now if you believe that God raised him from the dead. You'll turn from sin and turn to God. Would you stand with me and let's pray. Let's take just a minute or two alone to talk to God, listen to what God has said through his word. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, my friends, for Church on Mill, that God, the things that they have just lifted to you in prayer, the sins that have been confessed, the worldliness that's been renounced, the desires that have been articulated to follow you afresh and anew, We pray, Father, that you would take delight in those things. That as we have together prayed your word back to you, that you would do what you always do. That you would say yes. That you would be faithful to your word. And that my brothers and sisters who have just confessed significant sin to you, that God, they would walk out of the room lighter and freer and happier then they can remember being in a long time. And that that wouldn't be some Sunday morning emotional high, but it would be a deep-seated gratitude for the grace of Christ displayed today.
And I pray, Father, that they would have the courage before they leave to say to a trusted friend in the room, I confessed this to to God and I think I'm going to need help walking obediently. So let me tell you what I told God. And would you support me and ask me about this and pray for me and help me to remember I've been forgiven. And when I'm tempted to engage in it again, I want to say no to that sin and yes to God. So can I call you? Can I text you? Can I write you? And ask you in that moment when I'm tempted to pray with me. God, I pray there'll be dozens of those conversations in just a few minutes. And Father, if there is someone here today who has come to you for the first time and made that great shift from darkness to light, then we praise you, Father. We thank you. We too pray that they would go to somebody and say, here's what happened today, so that we could rejoice and encourage them. And Father, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to walk out the door into a world desperately in need of you, a world where their only hope is that you would invade selfishness and sin and rescue out through your grace and mercy. Father, all of us in the room who are believers have have friends, have family members, have neighbors, have teachers, have bosses who we know are not walking with you. God, put in us a burning passion to pray for them and to live Christianity out before them in a way that puts your goodness on display. We pray that your name would go forth in Tempe and all across this valley, and as Rob prayed earlier, all across the world, to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.